people should go go online and um, uh, and read that article. It was published by IPPR, which is the sort of calls itself the progressive policy think tank. I mean, it was a it's it's historically it's been a, a Blairite think tank, but it started publishing some quite um, I think quite interesting um, forward looking stuff about. Uh, Alternative models of ownership, and 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 you know, reflecting some of the some of the alternative thinking around um, around McDonald and and Corbynism. So the piece is called "The Future of the BBC." So if you Google it, you're sure you'll find it on the IPPR's website. And the, I mean, broadly speaking, what I argue for there is a a new digital license fee, so um, a shift away from the television license to um, a, a licensee based on uh, the digital infrastructure, um, a decentralization and democratization of the BBC's governance structures, which I think is just a sort of non-brainer, really, um, a, a greater regionalization in the BBC's programming, um, and uh, particularly ideas around how the commissioning process at the BBC might be used to uh, create a better sort of media ecology, if you like, around the BBC, can start to embed certain um, working practices and principles and bring the BBC closer to the public it's supposed to serve. And then another element of that was um, transparency of algorithms, which I think is a becoming a very um, important political issue. So the BBC, as it moves towards digital services, I mean, there's not going to be any um, television in the traditional sense. You know, I mean, that much I think is clear. Uh, we're going to have to start to think about what, what the BBC might become in a post-broadcasting age. And that's really what, what the article is about. And a big element of that is to do with the transparency of the algorithms that would be used in the BBC's digital services. So the idea here would be that rather than the algorithms being driven by commercial imperatives and there being no transparency, that the the, the users of the, of the BBC themselves would have total um, access to and understanding of the sort of tr algorithms that were being used by the BBC, but also um, would be able to adjust the way it functions. And that way, the idea would be that as the BBC becomes more like uh, a, a digital network um, and a platform, it, it would do so in a way that was in keeping with particular principles around privacy, intellectual property, um, democracy, and, and so on. Yeah, this, is, this, this issue around the algorithms is very interesting. Obviously, the commercial platforms... Are using algorithms to to sharpen the point, as it were, of their ability to penetrate particular market segments. So they, they want to develop um, forms of forms of content which are which are sort of particularly kind of appetising or, or um, toothsome to particular groups, and then to be able to interpolate advertising into that content in a way which you know. Every media company is fundamentally telling a story to potential advertisers. Um, as you say, if we think about algorithms in a different way as being, as it were, um, a form of public infrastructure, we think about them as ways in which we, we're automating um, the ways in which we learn about um, fellow users of a network. I think the, the democratic potential becomes really, really striking. And... 
not wanting to, you know, not wanting to sound too utopian about it. I think a lot of the anger that you see in online fora is this sense that we are kind of we're reduced to, uh, to a sort of isolated status, and then we're just kind of throwing rocks at um, the passing vehicle. You know what I mean? Like we're we are excluded from decision making, and then we're given a rock, and then we're asked, "Well, do you want to throw the rock?" And that's kind of that's the limit of what we can do. So if we were able to discover that actually an awful lot of other people felt something similar about an issue or about a program, about a piece of BBC content, it seems to me that it's not, it's not, it's not unreasonable to imagine that we might start to then communicate with that group of people in a much more constructive, and I'm using the word correct, you know, quite carefully, a constructive way of saying, well, what is it exactly about this piece of content that, we, that we, we take issue with and how would we like to see the issue framed right so instead of watching BBC Question Time and then going railing about the fact that there's like endless um, uh, more, you know more or less right of centre panellists there you start to you start to develop a working group on the BBC website for example that, that works out well actually what does a replacement for Question Time look like how do we want to structure a replacement? And you could imagine the audience finding, you know, a, a, a group of people finding themselves and developing a pilot for question time using the kinds of open, opening commissioning structures that you were mentioning as well and saying, well, actually, we'd like, in, in, we'd like to use these resources to, to, try, a, um, to try commissioning a, um, a different kind of political discussion program. Yeah. Um, I mean, I... Sorry. That's right. I mean, I, I think you know the, the potential is there for all kind addressing all kinds of um, problems, and uh, you're you're right. The, uh, the there is potential there as well because of the technology to break down some of the tensions which we can surmise might come from feelings of uh, alienation or being from a position where where critique is sort of the default position because you're not actually in a position to be. Um, as you say, con constructing anything. You can't, you can't actually be constructive because all you can do is um, offer a position of critique. And actually, you know, this is kind of the position that, as I alluded to when we started discussing it, the, the left has found itself, where it's having to move away from um, a position of critique to a position of trying thinking about how we, how we might do things differently. And of course, I, I think you're... You're absolutely right that with the different um, potentials that are there, um, I mean, it can't just be about algorithmic transparency. Uh, that element is, would, as, as I see it, would be one element of, of I mean, first of all, just in, in principle, I think, um, it, it's something that, can be re that, that should be required of these kinds of organisations, and certainly of a public organisation yeah. like the BBC. Um, but but secondly, yeah, it can fit in with a whole bunch of um, measures that allow for much greater integration at, um, of, of audiences into into an organisation like the BBC. Much greater power over how the BBC is run. So uh, another element which I talk about, as I said, is the this this issue of democratisation. Um, at the very simplest, I think this could this should be. Um, that you know, there should be democratic elections within the BBC's um, governance structures. But I mean, I think that would be a very limited form of, of democratization. And 
there's potential for a, a much greater integration of the BBC's audiences um, in, in decision-making at the BBC. So, you know, I'm thinking here, of course, of uh, ideas that, that you've been developing for a long time around um, public commissioning, um, but also, for example, uh, involvement, drawing on traditions in British broadcasting like community access groups uh, and 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 commissioning and starting to move towards seeing the BBC as less as a sort of um, venerated public institution and more as a kind of a hub or centre of um, expertise, technological development and service in the sense of not simply providing um, programme making as a service to the public, but, but as... Um, opening up those sort of um, skills and infrastructure and expertise more to the public, I think. Um, and then if we start to think about, think of the BBC more about that as an enabler of a wider kind of political and creative kind of ecology. I know ecology is sort of one of those horrible words that people use, but I'm afraid I've just picked up really. The BBC already fit, thinks about itself in these terms as providing expertise and funding to the industry, but basically that industry which the BBC, which we essentially are subsidising as yeah. um, licence fee payers, is, I mean, it's increasingly just uh, multinational. So there's been this quite significant corporate consolidation in the, in the private sector, which is going to be, which will be ongoing, and in combination, in parallel with the initiative at the BBC, which has basically been something approaching a total privatisation of its um, program making and commissioning um, processes. So, I mean, listeners may not know about this, but one of the things that Tony Hall had uh, pushed through at the BBC um, is opening up something, expanding something called the, I think it's called the Window of Creative Competition or something absurd like that. And it's basically the amount of programming that the private sector is allowed to compete for with BBC program makers. And that has now just become more or less, with some exceptions, like um, news and um, some news related to current affairs, has meant that everything that the BBC makes now um, will be done in competition with potential private sector providers. So the BBC is anyway being much more integrated um, into the private sector. And I think it was the interesting potential here for the left and for people interested in public and democratic media is how we might... Um, how we might produce something similar, mm -hmm. some sort of um, service, which instead of taking public money and essentially handing over um, expertise and resources to the private sector, um, how we might use those similar sorts of processes to um, support different types of organizational forms. So things like um, community groups, um, mutuals, and, and these sorts of things. And then the, the other thing, probably worth mentioning here is that, um, you know, that thing around um, subsidizing um, local journalists, where um, the right, BBC which again is, has... which again is a straightforward subsidy to the private sector, as far as I can see, right? I mean, yeah. um, the, the, the big newspaper groups have been enjoying mouth-watering profit margins from managing a process of decline in regional print publishing. Yeah, do you want to explain um, just briefly what this is to, to listen? Yeah, so yeah. I'm not an expert on this, but but in the new in the charter in the new charter, um, the BBC has undertaken to provide essentially to to pay the salary 
of uh, a journalist who would remain an employee, I think, of a, um, of a private media organization. And they would be, they would be, they would, they would be required to, um, to do essentially civic journalism, so reporting on things like courts and public bodies. Doing the kind of journalistic work that traditional local newspapers did, but which they increasingly saying they can no longer afford to do. And the idea there is that the BBC having a monopoly, effective monopoly on local journalism is bad, and therefore the, the solution is to give subsidies to um, the old print monopolies, or the old print um, oligopolies, which is, you can see why that political move might have been made, giving the lobbying power of these traditional um, newspaper operations. But, you know, following from what you're saying, it, this, is an, this is an obvious obvious area where the left can say, well, actually, rather than giving subsidies to, um, to, to private sector companies, which have been very successful at delivering returns to shareholders, um, give that public subsidy to accountable groups within the community um, and, give those, and give those groups some form of structured access um, to the BBC's audiences so that you have genuinely um, a, a, a popularly oriented and democratically accountable uh, journalistic function at work. Where, particularly in the context, I think, of the English regions, where this is just crying out to happen, and where actually, while the, while the local newspaper groups have been very effective at generating revenues for shareholders, I think it's fair to say they haven't been stellar in their in their investigative function. Um, they have not done the kinds of um, investigative work into local authorities um, that I think. Uh, is necessary at this point, um, and they're not likely to do um, if we give them money via the BBC uh, to subsidise their their ongoing journalism. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the kind of problem is that, I mean, you know, underneath the sort of uh, disenchantment with, with politics has been. I mean, it, it is correct that there has been a decline in in the local press and a decline in um, you know the functionality and political responsiveness of. Um, you know, municipal government and, and councils and the rest of them. I mean, that that has been part of, the, part of that sort of post-political rot, you know. And so it would be, it, it's hugely important, I think, that these kinds of things are given um, exposure. And in that sense, the idea that, oh, we need to revive local journalism is, of course, a good one. Um, but then it needs to, you need to, the idea, yeah, that you would be, that the BBC in combination with these, um, local private um, newspapers, which aren't, you know, these aren't community-run groups, you know, these are parts of um, large uh, corporations. Um, the idea that that's going to solve any problems for anyone apart from the local newspapers is just ridiculous. And um, the, I think, going back to the, you know, where the BB, how we might do this differently, um, you know, the, we have this commissioning system, I mean, which basically extends from a, a, a neoliberal review of broadcasting in the 1980s, something that was called the Peacock Report, where they stipulated that uh, a quarter of all BBC programming has to be, come from the private sector. And the reason they did that was they were trying to create 
um, a market, um, a consumer-based market, and they recognise that because the BBC, BBC broadcasting has been built around um, initially the BBC and then BBC and, and ITV, that that simply privatising the BBC wouldn't work. That it, this was seen as one step towards privatisation. I mean, quite explicitly, really. That um, that you needed to create a sort of you know vibrant private sector which would be able to um, would be able to then um, deliver. Uh, cultural go- goods through through a market system. I mean, which was just nonsense because, of course, what actually happened was that you started off with a relatively small number of companies, and then uh, they got bigger and bigger. And with economies of scale, then you have you know multinationals like Endeavour um, producing all of these sort of primetime shows that are where all the big money comes from. There's no transparency. You get this kind of um, uh, insular kind of relationship and sort of incestuous relationship between the people at the top of the BBC and the people at the top of these companies, private production companies who lobby through PACT. Um, so there's a whole set of relationships there that start to, um, you know, embed themselves within the BBC, um, particularly under after um, the reforms of the Burt period, which have now been intensified. And the point is that these processes were, were, were quite slow um, in delivering, but it's now been very well established and it's now being accelerated that, yeah, public money is going to be going out to um, the wider society. And we could do that very differently. You know, we wouldn't even have to pull the plug on um, the private sector funding. Um, you could simply uh, earmark a proportion of it, which would say the BBC has to, in the same way as it used to have to, a private independent production quota, as it's called, it can have a mutuals production quota, which means that you're only entitled to bid for this particular um, section of BBC funding, um, if you if you are a mutual, if you um, respect certain, uh, let's say, um, conditions of employment, if you allow unionisation, or um, if you can demonstrate that you're adequately rooted within um, regional communities. So there's all kinds of um, political and public stipulations which could be built into the BBC's commissioning process, which would gradually transform not just the BBC itself, when I think, you know, the BBC itself is in is, is the need of reform, but I think, you know, that's something we talk about, I think, um, people talk about a bit more than this issue, um, but that actually this can um, form the basis of a, a gradual um, transformation of uh, the wider media system or ecology, if you want to sound like a dick. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the key ideas that try and try to explore in, in this article, and I hope that you know, um, people read it. We'll tweet out the, um, the Twitter handle. Um, any thoughts, criticisms, very welcome. Um, let us know on Twitter. Um, as I said, a big, another big part of it is, is, is regionalisation, you know, breaking down the BBC, breaking down its centralised bureaucracy, and this, again, is something which can be built into um, commissioning systems, but also into editorial um, editorial structures. So there's no there's no reason why you shouldn't have the BBC program making um, much more radically devolved in terms of um, regional representation and much more open to um, a wider pool of talent. And this is this would all um, not only be good in principle because it would open up the uh, the, the BBC to more equitable recruitment practices, but it's going to produce more interesting, um, vibrant journalism and, um, and and drama and documentaries and all the rest of it, all the, all the good stuff that, you know, the neoliberals say that the market delivers. 
um, it would actually be capable of, uh, of delivering those things, I think. Right, and I think that's, that's, a really, that's a really key point, isn't it? That the, the, the point about it, it introducing genuinely more accountable, generally more democratic modes of production is that it would lead to better programming. Yeah. Um, this is not a kind of, um, you know, you know, eat eat this up. It's good for you know, eat your greens because it's good for you kind of model. This the idea here is that the programming that we have is stayed. Um, it it, it re reinforces all kinds of spoken and unspoken uh, assumptions about how power works and should work. And these, the, the, it's time for these to be challenged, and they need to be challenged um, from many and un. un and sort of unpredictable directions. Um, we can't go back, and I think this is important as well, there is a tendency on the left as it approaches power to actually start thinking in quite a small-c conservative mode of how do we restore the BBC to its old public service pomp? Right? How do we roll back privatisation of the BBC? How do, we, how do we bring back the golden age of the BBC? And the fact is we're not living in, that, in, the, in the 1950s world um, where broadcast it, it functions essentially unchallenged as the top medium. We are now in a, in a platform environment. And the choice is, do we have a platform environment that's dominated by um, capitalist uh, uh, operations um, that form more or less do more or less corrupt deals with um, elected representatives or do we or do we operate in a world of uh, of democratically accountable platforms platforms that are accessible to us uh, as producers and consumers uh, of civic information and as, as you say of cultural production um, yeah and I think you know one of the things which uh annoys me about some of these discussions I think particularly when it comes to culture and I think it's there's a sort of anti-democratic impulse built into a lot of, um, you know, cultural connoisseurism, where the assumption seems to be that if you do open up institutions to, um, you know, open up institutions to a much wider pool of input or decision making in what we, you know, in in production, for example, in cultural production, then that's going to sort of, it's going to end up producing worse culture. And I think this is something to do with. This is a kind of assumption which is built into the way the capitalist markets operate, um, which really sort of fuels the kind of elitism to which, um, you know, the patrician model of the BBC lends itself, which is that, you know, you need somebody, uh, a person of good taste and, and distinction to be making, to, to act as a sort of guardian against what, what, what otherwise would, would, would be delivered. And the problem with that is it's never informed by an idea of, 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 um, of taste and, um, and what capitalist markets do, you know. It, it's always based on the assumption that just people are stupid and have bad taste. But the way I think of this is actually, if this is done correctly, you can actually open up, like, the, the BBC to um, an enormous pool of expertise, mm -hmm. you know, which, um, you know, the assumption that, you know, let a thousand Alan Yentobs bloom, that's what I say. We need people who are more, we can have people who are more engaged and more knowledgeable about these things, still um, making leading decisions or educating other people in dialogue. It's not, it's not about the idea that 
um, everybody knows ever everybody's initial instincts about art or whatever are necessarily mm -hmm. correct, mm -hmm. but it is about taking seriously the idea that you know people outside of um, broadcasting house do have a legitimate right to um, be engaged in processes of cultural production and, and questions of, as you say, civic and political judgment. Yeah, and, and these two these two areas are, I think, bound very closely together. I mean, I, I have tended to sort of talk much more about the kind of news and current affairs side, um, but it's no accident that news and current affairs are fused so um, tightly in many respects are, are in, in the BBC, not, not on the production side so much perhaps as on the scheduling side. Because the way that we make sense of ourselves uh, as, a, as a political community is obviously refracted in lots of ways by, by our cu cultural production. And as you say, the idea that we have a Mandarin class of people whose job it is to act as arbiters of excellence in matters of um, aesthetic taste, um, I think flies in the face of any aspiration we might have to have a socially democratic um, settlement, if you like. If you look at um, if you look at some of the great moments of cultural production, um, they haven't been driven by um, top-down direction. They've been driven, in fact, by by the public being very vocal in expressing its tastes. Um, and there, there, I think there's a constant effort of of erasure that goes on to deny the fact that that people in the in the in the mass are perfectly capable of identifying great greatness, um, and that is actually our. It seems to me, if we if we take if we take our responsibility seriously, um, it, when we're thinking about media production, then we need to take seriously the, the potentialities um, of our of, of the of the audience as, as a whole. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing I would add that, you know, we we needn't be naive here about institutional design. You know, it, it's perfectly it's perfectly consistent to say that people need to be afforded um, a degree of creative freedom, right? So it, it's not about necessarily even about consumers sort of micromanaging cultural production, but it might be something like, you know, if if say at the end of a year there is there's a program making team or something which you think have been particularly good that you wish to support. You, you might want to support their next project, not tell them what you want to deliver. So like, I remember reading something interesting by um, the late Mark Fisher about um, cultural production and democracy, saying that, you know, it, and it was a slightly different sort of uh, way of thinking about it than I do, but saying that, you know, sometimes we need somebody to, we don't know what we want until somebody else makes it. And that element of surprise that comes out of non-market um, forms of creative production um, it's very important, and that's why markets tend to homogenize and, and you know, meet pre-existing tastes. But I think also, you know, it's possible to, to have both of these elements, you know, a degree of creative autonomy and um, an integration of, of the audience into decision and commissioning processes. I mean, I always think of something like HBO, which kind of ironically gets mentioned by uh, the Conservatives now as an example of, you know, private sector innovation and the rest of it. But really the reason why it's able to produce um, more critically acclaimed kind of um, dramas is because of the political economy of the channel, because it's not having to act, it has a kind of a captive audience. It's not having to um, persuade you always to 
um, to not switch channels, and that gives it that gives it much greater scope for for creativity. And I think we can have something like that in public service um, broadcast organisations. But the people you'd be cutting out isn't the aren't the creative teams. It's the people who are actually the sort of gate the cultural gatekeepers. You know, those are the people who we want to get rid of. And um, I think in the same way, we'd want to be removing. Um, the managerial and uh, editorial elite at the BBC from um, influencing um, editorial decision making. Because what, what you want is to have journalist teams which are more embedded within the communities they're going to represent and less embedded within the elite, the elite networks which tend to get here around the top of the BBC in the sort of, you know, what gets called the Westminster bubble. Right, so yeah, this, this point about, about the distinction between cultural and, and, as it were, political production, I think is really, really useful. As you say, the, the caricature of, of, of left art, if you like, is, or, is of, um, as, it, as it were, mass production or, or the, you know, the, the, the sort of enthroning of some uninformed um, mass impulse, where in fact artistic and cultural production depends on an element of surprise depends on intelligent innovation within a set of forms and so on. The, the, the space, I think, f- f- as I think you're, you're, you're getting at, the space for democratic discernment is in, in judging the product um, and in celebrating excellence when it's achieved. Audiences are capable of recognising excellence without necessarily being able to, to know what it looks like in advance. And as you say... The, the 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 challenge for create for creative people is to discover what people want before they know they want it um, and actually the you know gen, you know deep artistic experiences are troubling for audiences often they're not they're, you don't sink necessarily into them like a warm bath um, they they will often be in that terribly overused word challenging um, and we're not, I think, neither of us would want to see a form of public participation in cultural production um, that somehow heads off that possibility of surprise um, and difficulty. Um, on the other hand, in, in, in terms of political content, I think there is much more of a place for, for the conscious and kind of expressed views of audiences um, to play a role in the way that resources are allocated. My my understanding is that I think people do know what they want to know more about. Um, and that will obviously change over time as more information becomes available to them. But I think that the that there is a sense, I think, that journalists have tried to keep to themselves almost a, a kind of an artistic role of, like, surprising the public. Um, with some scoop or other, and I'm much less interested in a culture of scoops um, than in a culture of, of, as it were, steady excavation, where the public say, you know what, we do really need to understand the financial sector, and we would like you to spend time and resources patiently interviewing people who are involved in it, talking to whistleblowers, talking to customers, talking to form, you know, people who have been involved in it. We'd like you to build a proper picture of this sector because it is of such primary importance to all of us, in, in particularly in the UK. Um, and that is, so I think there is a, so there's a sense in which the, um, the, the 
sovereign audience or the you know the the citizen body as as engaging in in the in the production of media it's almost like the difference between day and night like in the daytime it's brightly lit we want to know what's going on and then at nighttime we dream and the content of our dreams are um surprising um and they will perhaps inform us the next day but they're not do you see what I mean the art, art and news are not quite the same thing I no, I don't think they are. And as you say, you know, well, I think we both um, focus much more uh, of our writing and, and, and thought around um, around journalism. But I think when it comes to a you know a media reform agenda, I think you know you, you can't afford to not take those creative elements um, seriously as well. And I think, of course, that's a um, an enormous part of um, of what these what these organisations do. And actually. A lot of the problems with the BBC are political, but there are also certainly issues around the ways in which um, a, a very stifling managerial commercialized ethos has had a very detrimental effect upon um, upon um, the BBC's creative output, I think. And I, I don't think that's a controversial position to take at all. And the, but what the question then becomes, I think, what, what could we do in terms of um, institutional design to it? To address some of these problems, and I think, you know, to some extent, the uh, historical models of things like, you know, early Channel Four um, community access programming and these kinds of things do offer um, a, a clear, a clear agenda which can be followed, and I think followed much more radically in the context of um, contemporary technological development. The other thing, um, the other element of this, I think, um, which brings it a bit more back to the question of algorithms, transparency, and so on, um, is this notion of the, you know, the digital public space, which I draw upon here, which is, you know, comes from Tony Ager, um, which is the idea that we should see the BBC um, not just as a programme-making organisation, but as a, as a, as a, the license fee as a mechanism, a claim, a political claim um, upon a collective, um, a collective space, a uh, collective residue of, uh, sorry, reservoir of um, of culture uh, and knowledge. And I think this is quite a useful way to think about the BBC, and um, and also to think about some of the the aspects that you've mentioned in terms of, you know, the BBC's educational um, remit as to see it as as an organisation which should help us understand the world. And I think when it comes to this, this notion of the digital public space, what's important about this is the broader context, which I think we should probably come on to talk about now, which is the increasing power of um, these uh, multinationals like Google and, um, and, and Facebook and the extent to which you know, we're kind of moving relatively quickly into a situation where these very powerful, unaccountable organizations have enormous control over our community infrastructure. So I think the other element which I try to very strongly emphasize in this piece is the importance not only of, um, of reforming the BBC, but reforming the BBC as part and parcel of a, what I think is a very urgent need to respond um, politically to these new conditions which come with the rise of um, Facebook, Google, Amazon, these um, these corporate platforms. So do you, do you want to start by, by talking a bit about um, about how how the left um, and how you think the Labour Party should be signed to to engage with these kinds of issues. Sure. So I think the, 
But the immediate context, which I think is, is interesting, is that um, all this year, Zuckerberg at, at Facebook has been trying to articulate a, um, almost a public service vision of Facebook. Uh, Facebook is coming under a huge amount of pressure because of its, it, it includes a lot of abusive and extremist content. Early in the year, he published a, a long piece trying to explain how they were going to support what he called community standards throughout the world. And this is part, I think, of a, a much broader campaign by Facebook to, as it were, naturalize itself, to, to show the ways in which it was willing to be a responsible partner in power, particularly for elected politicians in the United States. And the most recent development in, in this has been uh, Facebook announcing that it's going to share information about suspicious ad buys um, by Russian-connected organizations during the election last year and during the presidential primaries, I think, the year before. Um, and this is, I think, really interesting and important because it shows that Facebook is going through a process of, as it were, domestication in the United States, much in the way that the emerging radio and broadcast operations are brought into a kind of fruitful partnership um, with, the, with the central state in Washington, I think that Facebook has already made its peace with uh, the security state and is now in the process, I think, of coming to a working arrangement with elected politicians in the United States. And what you can see, I think, in prospect, and how it plays out in, in as it were, the satellites and Facebook satellites is, is by no means kind of predetermined. But what you see, I think, in, in the homeland of the United States is this emerging reproduction of broadcast actually where um, it looks like an incredibly diverse and plural platform but in fact there are certain players within it who have a, um, a structurally privileged position and the the net result of uh, of what happens on the platforms um, is to exert a steady gravitational pull towards a, a you know a broadly capitalistic broadly in the United States, imperialistic outlook. Um, common sense will remain captive to uh, the needs and priorities of uh, Washington's ruling class. And it will, I think, so the, da the, the danger is it will reproduce the features um, of the broadcast, um, congressional broadcasting, or congressional broadcast complex, if you like, um, but with the appearance of much more um, variety and and user choice. Now, the challenge, that, I mean, our parliamentarians are, um, bless them, I don't think they're terribly quick on the uptake, and I don't think they're having the kinds of conversations with Facebook um, that the smarter senators and congressmen are having um, in America. Um, but you can see clearly how there would be a temptation for uh, elected representatives in the UK to seek to reproduce their current privileged position in the broadcast regime, in a digital regime. Um, people who are elected want to um, uh, take a central role in the production of public speech, um, and they will look for communicative regimes that deliver that. Now, the challenge for Labour, insofar as it is a, a democratic movement, insofar as it is a social movement, a, f a form of movement politics, is to ask itself, what kind of communicative regime does would we need in order to, as it were, 
um, create a much more egalitarian system of public speech so that the kinds of um, opportunities for, for um, uh, public deliberation, for public inquiry, um, public engagement in, in cultural production and as well as in political speech uh, would be possible. And that is, a, that is not going to come, I'm afraid, from a, uh, a slightly better behaved Facebook um, that submits to certain forms of, uh, set, quote, sensible regulation from the centre. It's going to come, I think, from a much more thoroughgoing look at how the political institutions relate to the communicative array. And we need to think, I think, um, much more carefully about the constitutional significance uh, of our communicative system, how it, or how it currently relates to the political uh, institutions, and how new technologies might be made um, to report on those, those institutions differently, but also to, to substantively change uh, the balance of power that, for example, MPs have uh, relative to their, their voters. I don't know how I don't know how how much more I can say on that. Does that do you want to pick up from that? Yeah, I think it's also worth probably saying that, you know, outside of the um legislature that there are, you know, much deeper relationships around the security state and these companies already, you know, which is going on behind the scenes in terms of, you know, very um, very sophisticated system systems of um, of surveillance, um, which you know, quite apart from any um, privileged access that politicians may have, or um, the extent to which they may be you know favoured in in algorithms or whatever. Um, there's a whole uh, question there. First of all, around you know the way that these in of themselves, the way that these corporations are shaping our online space without any democratic accountability, but also the relationship that has been built up with um, yeah, the American and British security states, um, which you know has I mean, obvious and very grave implications in terms of uh, civil liberties, particularly in the context of you know in increasing draconian powers for the last decade and a half, and which has been an ongoing process whereby you know uh, extrajudicial legal powers have been extended, um, certain long-standing legal rights have been eroded, and in fact you know a lot of these. Um, Institutions which are ostensibly concerned with security have acted in plainly illegal fashion. So, I think that's another element to think about. And I think also the other thing worth mentioning in terms of the relationship between these large corporations and the American state and indeed the British state is the extent to which you know the technological capacities and positions that they developed have themselves been parasitic on forms of um, public technological development. So. Um, you know that this is another um, another step forward. I think which we which which has been taken in terms of our understanding of um, these institutions is to is to see actually these successful institutions as um, being able to successfully occupy a position which is um, dependent upon um, the largesse of, of the state 
And I think this is the reality of how these these corporate oligopolies actually operate. It's something you know we've spoken about in the past. I mean, of course, it applies to all kinds of successful corporations, uh, the banks, obviously, um, adopting sort of uh, quasi state powers over um, the production of credit, and uh, you know, famously, um, arms companies. Um, energy companies and the rest of them have all had strong relationships with um, with capitalist states. So I think I think you're right that what we're, what we're probably seeing with Facebook is um, a, a, a sort of move towards the kind of political establishment, but then also, you know, Facebook are also representative of a new, um, of this kind of vanguard, if you like, of, um, of capital as well. So we're going to see a reconstitution of the American state around this as much as we're going to see um, a meeting of interests, I think, between a corporate giant and a, um, yeah, and, and the world's most powerful state, which, of course, like everything else that goes in the United States, is, is mirrored by developments in the UK. Um, I mean, so it, I, it, sorry, is it is interesting to think about how any kind of settlement in the United States would, as it were, filter out um, in that we were, you know, it was reasonable, I think, to talk in terms of, to some extent, of sort of national communicative regimes. Um, the, the, at, the, at the current rate of progress, it looks like we're going to have something that, look, that looks more like a kind of Chinese communicative sphere and then a, um, an American um, uh, communicative sphere um, such is the scale and reach of these new digital players at their current trajectory um, rather than rather than thinking in terms of um, nationalising Facebook I think it's useful to think again about centrality or the central role that the BBC could play in, in creating a, a, a a communicative sphere in the UK that reflected on and facilitated democracy in one country, as it were. Um, but I don't think anyone should be any under, under any illusions about what a serious challenge that would be to um, the Facebook, Google, NSA, uh, Washington arrangement. <laughs> Um, yeah. This is, I mean, this, as you say, this is the vanguard of American capitalism, which is also the agenda of uh, the federal state in Washington. And unpicking those two things um, is a is a fool's errand. There's no, it's not really clear what's driving what. I mean, the, the, the two things seem to fit hand in glove. Um, and this brings us, I think, to the foothills of a much bigger conversation about scale of the challenge that would face an incoming Labour government if it really wanted to do um, any of these things which are technically feasible, not, they're not impractical uh, in material or technical terms, but they do cut against um, the interests of very, very powerful global players. Yeah. Um, your, your point earlier about empowering um, cooperative um, production in media... Um, again, you, you know, on paper, it's a very simple proposition, um, but in but in practice, it would displace the corporation as the, as it were the default organisation, not just in in um, 
media production, but just invisible economic production at all. Um, shining a light on the cooperative sector, I think, would have uh, really important implications um, that the corporate sector itself would be very, very unhappy about. Yeah, but at the end of the day, you know, what are they going to do about it? I mean, I think the, uh, you know, all we can think about is, first of all, the technical feasibility, and then what what likely obstacles might arise. And I think that if, if you're able to approach these kinds of policy issues in, in a way which will give, um, which will reset some of the, uh, which will challenge some of the, um, privileges that the private sector is able to acquire from the state and in some cases it just simply means um, taking the sort of rhetoric that these people push seriously and at face value um, about competition, about creativity and, and so on. Um, it's difficult, these are enormously powerful organizations as you say and I don't think that, that you know there's really a question of um, nationalization in the sort of classic sense here but what you can do um, is force um, for certain transparency and regulations which will which will entrench certain um, advantages to uh, what would otherwise be uh, players which would have no chance of competition and I think in the case of the UK we do have an enormous head start in this regard simply because of the prestige of the BBC and the, the, the size of the BBC and, and the market weight that it has. Because the BBC, you know, it remains um, the market leader in these areas. And it's precisely that reason why, that's precisely the reason why the um, agenda of the private sector has generally been to hollow out the BBC because it represents a quite lucrative opportunity for expertise and, and resources. Now, if we are able to channel some of that in a different direction um, without pulling the plug, as it were, um, I can't see that they would, that the powers that be wouldn't, wouldn't, would have any choice but to um, accommodate what essentially amounts to a compromise. But, I mean, not to sound naive about, um, you know, the, the weight of resistance that any... Um, Corbyn government, say, would, would face in power, but I think it's quite important that um, that we we aren't on the back foot before we even get there. That we're ambitious about what it is that we want to achieve, and we're very assertive about the the public and democratic right that we have to make these claims on our on at what amounts to essentially our communicative infrastructure to move away from the idea of seeing the online space as actually being the property of these corporations and start to see these corporations for what they are, which is essentially um, intermediaries um, between us as citizens and and the state and, um, and other corporations. And to see them as essentially, um, you know, taking uh, value from, from something that we produce. You know, this is what Facebook does. These are what all of these parasitic platforms are doing, is they're positioning themselves in a privileged position in our society, and they're extracting value by doing so. So I think the first of, I think the starting point has to be a very um, ambitious and uncompromising assertion of our democratic and, and public rights. And then I think we can talk about, um, you know, what, what place we see for these um, these corporations in the new system. But I think, you know, to assert, first of all, that, that 
democratic and public rights come first, and the and and private property um, second should be the starting point. You know, we need to talk about non-market regulation. I'm not talking about expropriation of property. I'm talking about the right to operate within a market being something which is gifted you by the public. Right? It's a it's a it's a your your right to operate as a private company. Is something which is which is given to you democratically by the public. So that that I think has to be the starting point. And once you start to think slightly differently about these things, once you start to see cultural production as being as belonging to the public, as being a, a democratic process, then I think that you, you know you can start to see things quite differently. And I think that's at the sort of ideas level, if you like. I think that that's the sort of um, that's the starting point for um, for thinking some of these things through. Right, and, and I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking a bit about the, the way that Facebook would fare against a, a properly articulated public service platform organised via the BBC. And actually, a lot, of, a lot of the benefits to users of engaging in a, a public service platform would be be derived explicitly from its public character. Um, people would be motivated to engage with it because it would be a way of becoming a more active and effective citizen, um, both you know, in the community and, and more broadly. And so the kinds, of, the kinds of social dynamics that drive Facebook use, the need to be recognised, the need to, um, to feel that you are in community and so on, could be replicated in a public fashion. And actually it could be delivered or achieved much more fully um, in an avowedly public context. Yeah, and um, I think, you know, just to get to the question of models, I mean, when you think about these kind of corporations, um, you know, these platforms, and what they do and how, they, how they're able to make profits, I mean, it is basically based on a model of, okay, you have to monopolize one particular area, and then once you've monopolized it, you will be the go-to platform to, you know, um, see what your friends are up to, to uh, get a taxi, to buy a book or whatever. And the point is that these these ostensibly private organizations are essentially aspiring to the position of what amounts to a public um, utility because that's the only basis on which they can possibly operate. And that's why competitors never work because it never makes sense to... Um, to go to an alternative because these, um, you know, these conglomerates, you know, because you can only sustain one or two really because the, the whole business model is, is, a, is basically built around monopoly. And yeah. that's kind of yeah. the irony of, uh, of where, you know, the contemporary model of capitalism has taken us when you consider, um, you know, how public models have been maligned in the past as being, you know, um, lacking in accountability, innovation, creativity, precisely because they lack the vibrancy of, um, of, of private competition. Right. Um, that's, that's just not what's going on in the real world. You know, yeah. it's one of the things that um, Will Davis talks about uh, in his account of um, the Chicago school is how important that step was away from the idea of, you know, competition towards competitiveness, which was essentially saying, you know, if a company becomes the major market player, then we should let it do that because it means it's better than all the other um, companies out there. Well, this was the sort of recognition as, as to what was happening in certain sectors. You know, why is Facebook the, the biggest in the world? Why is Microsoft the biggest? Well, you know, because they're the best. I mean, that's sort of the rationale. Um, but being 
the biggest, keeps you the biggest, doesn't it? Um, and right. all of these organisations are are moving towards monopoly. That's that's why they're running on loss on losses. It's an interesting pitch as well, isn't it? Because it looks kind of like privatisation reverse. They're sort of identifying a an area which would make perfect sense to be a public resource. Yeah. And then seeking to establish themselves as kind of rent-seeking vampires on the back of that public resource because yeah. and that, and actually you know they you know they do say things like oh well Facebook's it's kind of like the old forum of the ancient world or it's like the old marketplace where people would meet and exchange ideas and stuff and these would have been public spaces right um, that would have been characterized by lots of individuals um, engaging with one another commercially perhaps but nevertheless they were publicly owned and regulated spaces um, and they are trying to own those 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 spaces which it would make sense to have as public spaces. Um, yeah. So we've talked a bit about um, the BBC, we've talked a bit about um, the platforms. I would like to ask you, Tom, these next few days, the Labour will be meeting to talk about um, media reform. What kinds of things, uh, and you can recap on what we talked about already, but what kinds of things do you think is really important for the Labour Party to be thinking about uh, in, in the next few days and over the next few months and years going into government, hopefully. In terms of media reform specifically? Yeah. Well, you know, perhaps you know, taking a broad view on that, like, you know, how it relates to other, other kinds of, uh, of change. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing is, is that Labour needs to be forward-looking. You know, we need to be going with the grain of um, technological change here. So I think the starting point has to be making a claim on the sort of future that seems to be unfolding now, this post-broadcasting future, this, this future uh, which is set to be on current trends dominated by these corporations. It, Labour needs to be offering um, a vision of a 21st century media which is going to be able to deliver on some of the promises of, uh, of this sort of horizontalist sort of networks, but, but we'll, we'll actually be able to deliver, right? So to, to, to use some of the rhetoric around, um, you know, uh, the online space and start to take that seriously and be able to, first of all, engage with, with the clear problems that we've been discussing, um, but to offer an alternative, which, as you say, isn't a step back and isn't a defensive move. You know, we're at a point now where we, need, we really do need to be making a claim on the future, and I think the future here is clearly a digital future, which is why I talk uh, um, about the need for a digital license, which is going to be part and parcel of a democratic and public claim on the on the online space, and will also form the basis of um, of a universalist claim on our collective knowledge, culture, and education. Of course, will be embedded within um, within the, the political system as well. Um, I think central to this has to be uh, democratization and reason regionalization and uh, uh, and and transparency. You know, none of which are um, are controversial or even particularly radical principles. But I think within um, in their implications would be radical. And finally, although I'll be somewhat repeating myself here, um, I think that the the that Labour needs to think about the kinds of um, media sector um, which will be created um, around the BBC. And there it needs to think very carefully, and this is, I think, quite a challenging issue, 
about how issues of precarity within um, within the media uh, and within a more decentralized media system are going to play out. Because one of the, one of the one of the issues that we're going to have is if you move away from a more um, uh, a statist model of the BBC, and I think elements of that need to be re- retained. But if you if you start to go to some extent with the grain of a kind of uh, a decentralized uh, BBC as a, a as a sort of hub of expertise, resources, and technology, rather than the kind of simply in-house production, one of the problems you're going to have there is to do with working conditions. And, and precarity, and that particularly, and and representation of minorities having proper um, opportunities for women who will, will, will fare less well in a, in a more competitive and more precarious job market. And of course, there's the issue of um, ethnic minority representation as well. So I think all of that stuff would have to be um, built into any um, any commissioning system. And I think uh, at that point, um, you know, again, the BBC can be uh, as a market leader, can have an enormous effect um, by building into its contracts with private companies reporting requirements, very detailed reporting requirements, which will be able to um, be able to ensure some of those um, some of those rights and some of those um, forms of representation. But I mean, I think most of all, it's about, as I say, uh, making a, an initial public and democratic claim on this. On this digital future, and then and then working out from there um, what the policy and the organisational design is is going to look like, um, and this it's not going to be an easy process to do this. We're going to need um, the unions on board, and you're going to need you know people from the industry who take seriously the idea that actually um, something's going to have to change. Otherwise, you know the kind of uh, Everything which people cherish in the BBC, the sorts of values which the BBC upholds, um, that there's going to be no place for them. And I think, you know, we've got um, till the next charter to to, to figure this out. Um, figure this out when it comes to the BBC, I think, and um, it's going to require a lot of attention and uh, a lot of thought. But I think, you know, there there are enough smart people out there to. Um, to uh, to resolve these problems, and I think it, you know, it's potentially um, it could be a very exciting time, you know, comparable to uh, the the development of Channel Four, but m- probably much more um, much more exciting and more vibrant in terms of uh, in terms of the effect that it could have on the wider political and um, and cultural life. That's interesting you say about about the next charter. A lot of what you said is very is very is very interesting. Um, your idea about a, a public democratic claim on the digital space, I think, is absolutely central. Um, this is the environment on which uh, key decisions about our shared life is, are going to be made, and um, and we need to make sure that the ground isn't tilted away from um, the general interest um, left to its own devices. Uh, it will be structured in such a way that key decisions take place far beyond our effective ability to, to reach them. And uh, we need to, as you say, be thinking very carefully now about how we forestall that development. In terms of timings, um, I think it's I think a, a, an incoming Labour government needs to start building 
the kind of democratic digital infrastructure that we need straight away, um, whether it does so um, explicitly within the BBC or does so in parallel with it. I don't think we can wait um, for for several years before this starts to be put in place. Um, so uh, my hope is that the incoming Labour government will grasp the importance of these digital platforms and will make the investments necessary um, to ensure that we have a, a meaningful public space uh, within which we can engage. You know, fundamentally, we need a space where we can engage meaningfully with, with the state and not doing so, as you say, through some sort of Silicon Valley filter of rent-seeking, but to do so in a much more direct and, and accountable way so that, frankly, we don't allow our, our elected representatives to get away with too much. Um, good, good. Okay, well, we've covered a huge amount of ground. Um, the Labour Party Conference starts on Sunday, and Indeed. there will be a number of events um, there which will touch on some of these issues. Um, and I guess all it remains for us to to sort of to keep an eye on, on things and and uh, and hope that uh, some of these thoughts are occurring elsewhere. Indeed, yeah. So anyone going to the Labour Conference or World Transformed, have a wonderful time. Um, we'll see you same time, same place next week. Thank you.